Well, hello, Avenue, and welcome to the next in our series of Summer Psalms. I want to begin our time together by holding up a relic from the past that means a great deal to me. It's what used to be referred to as a mixtape. So here it is. Now, for younger people watching, um, a mixtape was like a Spotify playlist, but in physical form. It was a bit of plastic that could and often did melt in hot cars, but it was also a labour of love for anyone who made them. Now, I loved recording mixtapes. There were so many things to consider. Who was the tape for, me or someone else? Which songs were best for this particular time in my life? You see, the truly great mixtape was one that had a beginning, a middle, and an end. It was a mixtape where each song would flow naturally into the next. Therefore, what you wanted to avoid were sort of grinding gear changes between the songs. Sudden unexplained changes of mood from one song to the next. So you wanted to avoid a really happy song being followed immediately by a really sad song. So you didn't want Walking on Sunshine by Katrina and the Waves followed by Radiohead no surprises. If you wanted your mixtape to be counted as a truly great one, you tried to avoid those sort of grinding gear changes. You tried to make it perfect. Well, why am I talking about my love of the mixtape? Well, one way of looking at the book of Psalms in the Bible is to look at it as the definitive mixtape, the definitive playlist for the Christian life. See, the book of Psalms, it's a precious gift from a loving God to his people. It's a collection of 150 songs that between them cover every mood, emotion and experience we will go through in the Christian life. They're a mix of songs and prayers given to us by God to help us sing and pray and cry out to him as we follow Jesus in this world. And every summer at Avenue, we work our way through the Psalms. And every summer, I'm struck again by just how precious a gift the Psalms are to all of us. And so if we can describe the book of Psalms as a mixtape or a playlist for the Christian life, it has to be said, the loving God who gave us this playlist has none of the qualms I had about avoiding sudden changes in gear through this list of songs. See, today we're looking at Psalm 89 together. Now, it needs to be said this is a longer psalm than normal, so we're not going to have it read out for us in this video. I'm going to walk us briefly through the psalm before we think of some lessons from it. But I'd really encourage you to have Psalm 89 open in front of you as we refer to it. Now, Psalm 89 follows on, funnily enough, from Psalm 88, widely regarded as the darkest and bleakest psalm of them all. And if you haven't already done so, please let me encourage you to watch Dan's sermon on Psalm 88 on the YouTube channel from last week. Now, Psalm 88 ends with the psalmist crying out to God. You have taken from me friend and neighbour. Darkness is my closest friend. Now, you might ask the question, well, where do you go from there? What's the next song on the playlist? Well, here's how Psalm 89 Again, Psalm 89, verses 1 and 2. 
I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth, I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. See, it's quite a gear change, isn't it? From seeming despair to shouts of praise. You might think, well, what are the editors of the book of Psalms thinking of putting these two Psalms together like this? But you see, if we think the opening of Psalm 89 is a dramatic change from the end of Psalm 88, well, the biggest gear change is still to come. The most dramatic gear change of all comes within Psalm 89 itself. See, as you read over this fairly long psalm, you discover it's very much a game of two halves. Verses 1 to 37 is a joyful song of praise to the Lord, thanking him for the amazing promises he's made to bless and protect his people. These promises centre on the king God has promised will rule over them, a king in the line of David. So look at verses 28 and 29. God speaking, I will maintain my love to him, to this king forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. See, up to verse 37, Psalm 89 is a song of praise to a good and faithful God. But then comes verse 38. Comes what feels like a grinding change of gears. Because the psalm suddenly changes, dramatically changes, into a painful song of complaint, directed towards that same good and faithful God of verses 1 to 37. Look at verse 38 with me for a minute. But you, God, have rejected, you have spurned, you have been very angry with your anointed one. You have renounced the covenant with your servant and have defiled his crown in the dust. You have broken through all his walls and reduced his stronghold to ruins. See, in verse 40 there, that reference to broken walls and ruined strongholds is probably a reference to the horrors of the Babylonian invasion. When Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC and the king and most of the people were carried off into exile. Now, whenever the psalm may have been written, the psalmist is painfully clear in the second half of the psalm. Everything seems to have gone wrong in spite of the promises of God. See, by verse 46, the psalmist moves to the question that stands at the heart of so many biblical responses to suffering. Verse 46, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? And then verse 49 comes perhaps the most painful question in the psalm. Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? Let's make no mistake, this prayer is a pained disappointment with God. Where is your former great love, God? You made all those amazing promises, but, but where are they now? Why are we living in this suffering world? Why are we struggling, Lord? See, Psalm 89, it's a psalm of sudden, dramatic changes in mood. The second half of the psalm seems to contradict the first half of the psalm. So, so we need to say, well, what are we meant to do with a psalm like this? 
Well, as I've wrestled with Psalm 89 this past week, I've become convinced that part of the message of this psalm is this. A life lived for Jesus in this world will always be mixed. A life lived for Jesus in this world will always be a mixture of the good and the bad, of joy and sorrow, of praise and lament, of seeing God at work in our lives and then questioning whether God's doing anything in our lives. See, Psalm 89 gives us a dramatically mixed picture of the Christian life because this is how the Christian life will often feel like to us. And why is it such a mixed experience? Well, the short answer is because we live in a fallen world marked by sin and suffering and we are all fallen people who sin and who suffer. When you think about it, you can see the mixed nature of life in this world all around us every day. A day spent enjoying the sunshine can sometimes end with painful sunburn. That family holiday you've been longing for and maybe you can go on now may well be affected by arguments, by bad tempers. Some elements of lockdown are lifted, other elements are strengthened. Life in this fallen world will always be mixed. And scripture like Psalm 89 recognises that and helps prepare us for that reality. But more than that, I believe Psalm 89 helps us find a way to live with the painful tension that stands at the heart of the Christian life. And you can describe that tension by using those headings we've used for those two halves of the psalm. Verses 1 to 37 insist on the fundamental truth, God is good And then verses 38 to 51 insist on another fundamental truth. Life is hard. So the question Psalm 89 leaves us with is, well, how do we live between those two truths, those two realities? God is good. Life is hard. And I want to suggest there's a number of options open to us to deal with those two truths. Options we can often take, many people around us take in this world. Option one, well, life is hard, therefore God is not good. So we can look around us at the suffering in the world. We look inside ourselves at our own struggles and we say, well, if God was really good, well, we would, he wouldn't allow us to experience those sufferings, those struggles. Therefore, well, God mustn't be good then. The second option is the opposite. Well, God is good Therefore, I guess life isn't hard. And actually, quite a lot of Christians can take this second option. I knew of one woman who believed that her faith in Jesus meant that she would never be sick again. And as a result, whenever she had a cold, she would insist, no, I'm fine. Thanks be to God, I'm not sick. And she would do that while her nose was streaming, her eyes were red, her throat was hoarse. Now, she was a fairly extreme example of that second option. But more common is the sense Christians can have that to openly admit to God and to others that we're finding life hard, that we're struggling, is somehow to be disloyal to Jesus. So instead, we say to anyone who asks us, we we pray, no, Lord, I'm fine. Everything's fine. You're good and I am fine. And we hide ourselves and we try and hide from God the truth that we're feeling. See, what strikes me 
about Psalm 89 here is this. The psalmist rejects both of those approaches. He insists that the two halves of his psalm are equally true. God is good and life is hard. And he puts those truths together in this song. And he's honest with us. He says there's something painful about putting those truths together, but he insists that both things are true. And so the question facing us as we read this psalm together today is, well, how are we going to respond to those two truths? God is good and life is hard. Again, I'd really encourage you to take the time to read through the whole of this psalm and you'll see something remarkable. The psalmist doesn't just make the statement, God is good. He celebrates and rejoices in God's goodness. And the psalmist doesn't just make the make the statement, well, life is hard. He, he weeps, he cries out to God in response to what he's finding hard. So just glance over the first half of the psalm with me. God is good, verses 1 to 37. And God is good, first of all, because his love endures forever. That's verses 1 to 4. It's the eternal nature of God's love that the psalmist celebrates here. I mean, just look at the repetition of the words forever through all generations throughout this psalm. Look at verses 1 to 2 again. I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever. See, for the psalmist here, God's love isn't just something we say we believe in. No, God's love is something we sing about, something we celebrate, something we tell other people about. And then look at verses 5 to 18. God is good because he's strong and he is just. See, the psalmist celebrates the fact that God rules over all the other powers in the universe, whether the powers of the angels or the powers that stand opposed to God. He refers to this this figure Rahab that was a, a picture of a powerful sea serpent that also stood for Egypt the nation that had enslaved Israel. Verse 10, you crushed Rahab like one of the slain. With your strong arm, you scattered your enemies. The psalmist is clear. God is stronger than any enemy that could stand against us. And as well as being strong, the psalmist says, God is also just. He's also good. Look at verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. See, here's a God worth trusting in, a God worth praising, says the psalmist. And then verses 19 to 37, God is good because he gives us a king to lead and protect us. See, for the psalmist here, the most tangible sign of God's goodness and love for his people is his provision of a king to lead us. Look at verses 19 to 20. Once you spoke in a vision to your faithful people, you said, I have bestowed strength on a warrior. I have raised up a young man from among the people. I have found David, my servant. With my sacred oil, I have anointed him. See, at the heart of Psalm 89 stands an amazing promise. God has appointed a king through whom he will bless his people. All God's promises and goodness towards his people somehow centre around this king. Now he's a king from the house of David and he's a king they can depend on. A king who will lead them justly. A king who will fight their enemies for them. A king who will protect and bless them. And the good news is this king will rule over his people forever. He will be eternally committed to his people. 
So by verse 37, the psalmist has made a compelling case that the God he is describing is without doubt a good and loving God. But then comes the sudden twist of verse 38. The twist that says, actually, in spite of the goodness of God, life for the psalmist is hard. And you see, the psalmist is just as convinced of that as he was convinced of God's goodness in the first half of the psalm. Life is hard, according to the psalmist, because God's king has been defeated. That's verses 38 to 45. See, in spite of all the amazing promises surrounding God's king we just looked at, it seemed like the very worst has happened. God's king has been defeated by his enemies. Look at verse 42. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. Verse 44. You've put an end to his splendor and cast his throne to the ground. You've cut short the days of his youth. You've covered him with a mantle of shame. Again, there's almost certainly a reference to the exile in Babylon when the line of kings from the house of David seemed to come to an abrupt end. The psalmist is overwhelmed with grief and with disappointment here and he cries out to God in all of that. Then life is hard, verses 46 to 51, because God's promises are in ruins. Verse 49 again, Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? See, God had promised David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. But now God's king has been defeated. Those promises lie in ruins. God has promised his people he would always love and bless them through his anointed king. But now, well, God's people are in exile. See, the psalmist just cannot see how any good can come out of all this. And actually here is where we leave him in the psalm. So what is the message of Psalm 89 for us today? Well, it's a psalm made up of two halves. And each half insists on a truth that the other half seems to contradict. Verses 1 to 37, God is good. Verses 38 to 51, life is hard. So the question for us becomes, well, how does Psalm 89 help us live between those two realities? Just a few thoughts as we finish. I think the first thing this psalm teaches us is something we thought of, we thought of it last week, we were thinking about really again and again we come to the psalms. Psalm 89 tells us to pray your disappointments. Pray your disappointments. Bring them to God. See, in the first half of the psalm, the psalmist is absolutely convinced that God is good. And in the second half of the psalm, the psalmist's experience of life seems to put God's goodness in doubt. So what does the psalmist do? He prays about it. He brings his disappointments to God openly and honestly. Verse 49, Lord, where is your former great love? And I believe we can all learn from this. I read a hugely helpful book a couple of months ago on discovering really what the Bible means by the practice of lament. The book is called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. And it begins with the author telling the story of how he and his wife lost their daughter in the closing stages of pregnancy. A few years later, they were sitting in a hospital car park after receiving yet more disappointing news 
as to whether they would ever have another child. And the author's wife prayed in the car. And here's what she prayed. She prayed, God, I know you're not me, but it feels like you are today. That, said the writer of the book, is a biblical lament. It's a blunt and honest prayer, but it's very much in keeping with the prayers we find in Psalm 89. And there'll be times in all of our lives and we'll feel like praying this way. And the message of Psalm 89 for us all is we can pray this way. God gives us permission to be honest with him. We can be honest about our hurts and our disappointments and our questions. We need to bring them to God because it's that sort of honesty before God that leads us into a closer relationship with him rather than leading us to walking away from him. So pray your disappointments, Psalm 89 tells us. And as you do that, hold on to God's promises. That's the second lesson we get in this psalm. Hold on to God's promises. See, again, in the midst of suffering and struggle, the psalmist could just walk away from God or give up on him. But instead, he does something that stands at the heart of biblical lament. He throws God's promises back at God. He remembers God's promises. He goes over God's promises in rich detail. And then he refuses to let go of them. That's what he's doing in rehearsing God's covenant with David here. Remember what you promised, Lord. Please help us according to your promises. See, when life is hard... It can be all too easy for us just to close our Bibles, to give up praying, to give up meeting with other Christians. But the message of Psalm 89 for us all is, it is precisely when life is hard that you need to remind yourself of all the promises of God. And then you need to hold on to them with everything that you have. Promises like, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Promises like, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Promises like, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. When life is hard, Psalm 89 tells us, hold on to the promises of God. Remind yourself of his promises. Pray his promises. Because as you do that, you remind yourself of who God is and why he is able to help you. By the end of Psalm 89, the psalmist fears that God's promises have all come to nothing. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The king has been taken captive. God's enemies seem to have won. And in a similar way for us, when life is hard, we can be very quick to believe that all is lost. Everything has gone wrong. God's purposes for our lives have come to nothing. But it's when we feel this way we need to remember Psalm 89 is not the end of the story. Instead, we need to trust that God's purposes are far greater than we can even imagine. See, for the writer of Psalm 89, the exile to Babylon looked like the end of the story. But 70 years later, God brought his people home again. And a few hundred years after that, Jesus was born into this world. The king who was both the descendant of David and the son of God here 
on earth. At the age of 33, Jesus was arrested and condemned to death. He was beaten. He was crucified on a cross outside the city of Jerusalem. Once again, it looked like that was the end of the story. As Jesus hung there dying and then was buried in a tomb, it looked like God's promises had failed. God's king had been defeated. God's enemies had won. But then, three days later, Jesus rose again. He rose from the dead to show that he'd won the victory over sin and death and the devil. God's promises had not failed. God's king had won. In spite of appearances, God's purposes had always been far greater than any human being could have imagined them to be. It was precisely through the suffering of our King Jesus in our place that we are forgiven, that we are rescued from sin and death, and that we one day will take our home in a new creation where life will no longer be hard, will be free from sin and suffering and pain. And what does all that mean for us today? Well, don't simply trust in what your eyes can see. Don't put your trust only in appearances. Instead, put your trust in the God whose purposes are always far greater than we could imagine. And what does it look like to trust in God? Well, it looks like drawing near to Jesus, drawing near to the King promised in this psalm who suffered in our place. See, when life is hard, we need to remember our King Jesus knows all about suffering. Because he himself suffered, he's able to help us when we suffer. And more than that, as our promised king, Jesus went to war against sin and death and the devil in our place and he won the victory over them all. And when he returns, he will share that victory with everyone who trusts in him. And in the meantime, Psalm 89 is a song we can sing in this fallen world. In this fallen world, we live our lives between those two realities. God is good. Life is often hard. And Psalm 89's honest with us. It is painful living between those two realities. But equally, it is possible to live between those two realities. Why? Well, because of the King God has sent to us. Because of King Jesus. God has given us a King we can trust in. Jesus, a King who is here to help us. A king who knows what it is to suffer in this world. A king who suffered for us, who fights for us, who will never leave us as we draw near to him with our questions and our hurts and our struggles. Look at verse 46 of this psalm again as we finish. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Asked the psalmist. And the answer the book of Revelation in the New Testament gives us is a remarkable one. How long, O Lord? Not long now, says Revelation. Revelation 22, verse 20, the words of the risen Jesus. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Psalm 89 tells us life is often hard here and now. 
But the psalm also helps us to see God is always good. His king is always faithful and his king is always with us. Revelation 22 again and verse 21, the final words of the whole Bible are an amazing promise for everyone who puts their trust in Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Amazingly, we are never alone in this fallen world. Our King, Jesus, is with us to the very end of the age.